start uh, our study tonight in the book of Titus, and I have a schedule up here for you. I have limited number of copies, so I'm going to put those on the table out there, and you can grab one. I uh, don't necessarily need it tonight, but it'll give you a, kind of our schedule to work through this book for um, for the summer, including some of the breaks that we're going to have. So if you haven't already turned in your Bibles to Titus, we'll just do an overview tonight and look at the first four verses of the letter. And let's pray. Father, when we are faced with fears and uh, trials and difficulties, when when our lives don't match up with what we say we believe, we run to Christ and uh, we find strength and we find help in a time of need. We're thankful for our Savior and uh, that we can come to you, Father, through Him, through the finished work that He has done. May you use us tonight and, and encourage us, challenge us through your word. Speak to us. We, we need your word, Lord. There's nothing more that we need in life than than to hear from you, so we're thankful that we have a way to do that, that you have made your voice known, uh, certainly very clearly in the, the creation that we see all, over, all around us, but more specifically and, and in a much clearer way, we see it in your word, and so we're thankful for it, and we want to honor you through it tonight, so help us to, to revere you as we see you in it and respond with mercy and our uh, not with mercy, but with obedience, and uh, that you would grant us the mercy we need to do that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, several things about the book of Titus. Um, first, it's a book that was written by Paul. In chapter 1, verse 1, you see that. Uh, in fact, let me just read the first three verses just so we can get a, an idea of what Paul wants to do here in this in this letter, Paul, a bondservant of God and, and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God, our Savior. So Paul names himself as the author. He he does this often. Uh, if he's the author of Hebrews, then that's the only time that he didn't do it. But, but everywhere else, he certainly does. And um, there's no doubt here that he is the author. And then he had identifies himself in two ways. First, that he is a slave of God or a bond servant. You see that in verse 1. Paul's saying, I'm not my own master. I, I don't belong to myself. I can't, make, I can't, can't uh, call it my way. I can't make my own rules up. I belong to God. I'm a slave of God. And and yet, the fact that he's a slave of God does not mean that he, he doesn't have authority. And this is going to be important because he's going to come into contact with these believers here in, in Crete and he wants to make clear to them what it is that, that is the truth. And he wants to say, here, I'm not just a slave of God. I'm also an apostle of Jesus Christ, which is saying that that um, my ministry is valid. What I'm about to say is legitimate. My ministry is valid, and, and so it should be believed. 
You see, the, the Cretans, the people from the island of Crete, had bought into the lies of the false gods and, and had accepted all of their credentials, like they are some special force that should be believed in. And Paul's saying, listen, I'm a messenger of Jesus Christ. I come uh, by the name of Jesus Christ. He also lists there in verse 1 his ministry goal. He says, an apostle Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. So, do you see that first word there, for? It's used to describe the goal of Paul's apostleship. It is to bring faith and knowledge. He wants to see people grow up in their faith. Not, not only to receive the faith of Jesus Christ, but in this context, it seems like the letter is all about uh, growing them in their faith. That it's not enough just to, to say you believe or to, to get the fire insurance from hell. You need to grow in your faith. You need to grow towards godliness, which is a key theme that we're going to see throughout the, the book. Paul doesn't want the believers in Crete to simply, simply be saved. He wants to see them bear fruit. That's, that's his ministry goal. And the basis for this goal is found in verse 2. He wants to see them grow in the knowledge of truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life. So the foundation for this growth is the hope of eternal life. And the reason that this hope that they have is secure is because it's based on what? What does it say there in verse 3? What is this hope based on? The hope of eternal life is based on what? Or sourced in, we could say it's sourced in the God who cannot lie. So, it's not just that God, when it says God cannot lie, it's not just that God speaks the truth. That is true. God always speaks truth. It's not just that God never deceives or never lies. That is true. God never deceives, deceives or lies. It is that God cannot lie. Right? He is light and in Him there is, there, there is no darkness at all. God cannot lie. And so what that means for us is that He can be trusted. That means that His Word is true. So, we would expect if God is true, that everything that He says is true. And we have it right here. Everything that He's, he's wanted us to know is written down for us in His Word. And so, we can trust His Word. And, and that means that His Word is without contradiction. Because God is unified in His thinking and He is perfect, then, then His Word is going to be true and without contradiction. And so that means that all of his promises will come true. And the reason that Paul brings this up is because Titus is fighting against some opponents who are perpetual liars. Look at verse 12. One of them, one of themselves, that is, one of their own, one of their own people, one of the, own, the, the Cretans there, they say, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And then he says, this testimony is true. So, one of their own people says, all you Cretans are liars, or all we Cretans are liars, effectively. And so, what, what Titus has to deal with when he's, he's trying to establish this church and try to, to further the work of God here in this church is he's dealing with a society who are perpetual liars, who, who, who think that it's socially acceptable to lie. And so Paul's saying, in contrast, 
to these perpetual liars that the, the Cretan believers are listening to and being influenced by, this word that I'm about to tell you is coming from the God who cannot lie. His promises are true. So, so to step back here, he's saying, I, Paul, am an apostle, a messenger of God. I'm speaking on behalf of the God who cannot lie. And so what I'm writing to you, Titus, is true. And Titus, as you read this to others and as you teach these things, you can do so on the authority of God. And the importance of God's truthfulness is seen in the last part of verse 2, that He promised in long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even His Word or even the Gospel in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. So many times in the Scriptures when you see the word Word, it's often referring to the Scriptures as a whole, but here I think it's talking about the Gospel. That this Gospel had been entrusted to Paul and now it's, it's a fulfillment of what God said would happen. All the way back to Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. That somewhere down the line, there was going to be someone born from Eve who would have victory over Satan. And what Paul's saying is that gospel has been manifested now to you. You now know that this man, Jesus, was actually sent by God. He is the Son of God. And so what Paul wanted to see happen, certainly Titus did as well, was to see the gospel of the Messiah take root in Crete. So, verses 1-3, through Paul validates his ministry by placing it inside the eternal plan of God. God has this plan that He set up a long time ago, and now it's coming to fruition as you people in Crete are receiving the gospel and and expressing that gospel in the way that you live, in your godliness. So the book of Titus was written by Paul. Secondly, we see that the book of Titus was written in the mid-60s. We don't see this, actually. I'm just going to tell you. Um, the Bible doesn't tell us specifically when it was written. It would be nice, perhaps, for us just to have a chronological idea of when all these books are written and what time period they covered but we have to kind of connect history to these books to be able to find those things out. And thankfully we have godly scholars who have worked to, to help us in that way. And scholars believe that Paul actually wrote this letter between his third and fourth missionary journey, or probably on his fourth missionary journey. Now, if you're to go through the book of Acts, you know about the first, second, and third missionary journeys. They can completed when... Remember, Paul decided, I'm going to go back to Jerusalem because I have to make sure that this gift get, makes it there. And plus, I want to encourage the believers there. I want them to know that I'm on their side. He goes back, and what happens to him when he gets to Jerusalem? He gets arrested, right? He, there's a mob that forms, and he gets arrested, and a couple attempts at murdering him, and he's able to be spared. And, and after not being able to, to uh, convince the leaders, the rulers of that day, they end up taking him to Rome because he appeals to Caesar. And so he ends up in a Roman prison for a number of years, and that's how Acts 28 ends. We're kind of left hanging. What's, what's going to happen? And we, if we think about how that fits in with Romans, we just finished our study in Romans, that, that Paul's desire was to go to where? He wanted to go to Spain. He wanted to see the gospel make it really to the farthest part of the world, known world at that time, Spain. And so... 
Um, the, the scriptures don't talk about him making it there. However, it seems as if following his imprisonment in Rome, he's released and he's able to go on a fourth missionary journey to start going back over, pass through these churches, perhaps gain some more support and encouragement from these people. And then as he did that, he writes this letter to Titus. Apparently what had happened is Paul either established the church or sent Titus to start, start this church on the island of Crete. We'll talk about the island uh, in a little while. But, but very likely this letter was written in the mid-60s, probably 62 to 64, um, somewhere around there. And then Paul would be imprisoned again, according to tradition, historians, um, probably uh, imprisoned a second time in Rome where he would end up being killed. Thirdly, the book of Titus was written to Titus. Okay, pretty obvious. We, we don't have to think about that too much. But, but you see that in verse 4, and we get a little bit more description of Titus. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Paul calls Titus his true child. Now, Paul very likely wasn't married, but he... he certainly saw Titus as a fellow worker, but here he calls him my true child. What he's saying is, I see myself to you, Titus, as your spiritual mentor. You know, I've kind of carried you along for all these years, and now I expect that, that you will be able to, um, to do this ministry well. Paul had seen him work. And this designation of calling Titus a true child goes along with this validation of ministry that he's trying to do for the people there in Crete. Because remember, the Cretans are listening to all of the, this noise, these lies that are out there in society about their false gods and who's in control and what true Christianity is all about, true spirituality. And Paul says, here's, here's the validation. I have been sent by Jesus Christ as an apostle, and I'm saying to you, my true child, okay, you, you, you have my authorization to teach these things. Titus had traveled with Paul for 10 years, and so they knew each other well. And while Paul only mentions Titus at the beginning of the letter, that is, as the recipient, when he says to Titus, he doesn't say to Titus and the believers in Crete, does he? But I would suggest to you that he actually includes more than just Titus in his letter. That is, he wants other people to listen in to this letter. He wants other people to kind of look over Titus's shoulder as he reads the letter. Or we could say it this way, Titus probably read this letter in front of the church. He wanted the believers to know that. The reason I say that is because um, Paul gives his credentials in, in one one, right? He says, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, if he's writing just a personal note, just to Titus, who had been with him for ten years... Do you think Titus would have known that Paul was an apostle? Absolutely. Okay, He had seen him minister. He had seen him minister on behalf of God. He had heard the stories of him perhaps being taken up to the third heaven and so on. And, and so I don't think he's saying an apostle of Jesus Christ because you, Titus, don't know. I think he's saying that for the benefit of the other people who are reading this. I am speaking on behalf of God, on behalf of Jesus. And the, the, probably a better proof of it is in the very last verse of Titus. There are ten commands in the book of Titus. All of them are singular. So it's, the idea is you, 
you can't really see this in our text, but but you know when we give a command, I could say, "You go to your room." And I could be talking just to Benjamin. That would be singular, but we can't get that if I said that uh, you go to your room. I could be talking to all of you, right? We can't we can't get that from our language. But in the Greek, they actually make it clear whether it's singular or plural. Right in the verb, it's it's right uh, uh, connected to the verb. And so every time that Paul uses a command in the book of Titus, he he uses it singularly, saying so he's talking directly to Titus. Titus, you reprove. Titus, you teach. You urge the young men to be sensible, and so on. And then there are also ten second-person pronouns in Titus. Okay, all you English buffs, what's a second-person personal pronoun? Anyone? What is it? You. Okay, so every time that's that's used, it's used in the singular. So again, same idea. You. When I came to you, when I urge you to do this sort of thing. And and except for this very last one. Notice in chapter 3, verse 15. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with y'all. Okay? And that's actually a helpful translation. All the English translations seem to capture this idea. He's trying to say, this is not just you. All of my friends that are with me, Titus, they greet you individually. No, he's saying, we greet you all. And so what he expects to happen is not for Titus to hold on to this letter and just kind of hide it in his desk drawer, but rather to read this letter to all the believers because this was beneficial for them. And we can understand why. We can understand how as we'll go through it because it's also beneficial for us, isn't it? To kind of look over the shoulder of Pastor Titus and see what kind of things were expected for how to structure the church and how to, to deal with, with the false teaching that was, that was starting to spring up. So let's think about the secondary audience. I, I've been mentioning the Cretans, the 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 believers from the island of Crete. If you're to look in the the uh, map in the back of your Bible, I should have had one here for you on the, the overhead, but but you can look in the back of your Bible and you can see the the island of Crete. Paul landed here uh, when he was being taken from Jerusalem to Rome, and um, his ship was trying to pass by in Acts chapter 27, and the winds would not allow them. They just got stuck in one place for a really long time, so they ended up having to take cover underneath some of the the trees or keep the wind from coming uh, against their sails and they end up just docking on the southeast corner of Crete. And they stayed there for all the whole winter. And then they took off again and Paul said, you, you shouldn't go right now. It's, it's way too dangerous. We need to wait till the spring. And they went anyway and they, of course, were shipwrecked and ended up making it to Rome anyway. But, but uh, Crete was made up of people that were pagans. I mean, they believed that their island was the birthplace of the majority of the gods, including Zeus, who apparently was buried there as well. Paul had established a church there, but the church was apparently adopting the philosophies of their own society, which was godless and immoral. And so what Paul wants to do now is with this church is he wants to send Timothy, here you go, my brother, my son, go to this island and set things in order and appoint elders who are godly and and get rid of those false teachers from the church and let the believers there know that, that it's not enough for them simply to believe the gospel. 
They must live it out because the gospel has real life effects. Which is why Paul says in chapter 1, verse 4, to Titus, my true child in the common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. The means by which, Titus, you are going to be able to carry this out and, and you believers will be able to carry this out is only through the grace that comes from God through Christ. The next thing we see is that the book of Titus was written to instruct Titus to act. So, I said that it, it's supposed to be read by more than just Titus, but primarily this is directly at, directed at Titus. All the commands are directed at Titus. And, and as I mentioned, false teaching has infiltrated the church and starting to shape the thoughts and, and the actions of the believers. And so notice what Paul says to, to Titus in verse 5 of chapter 1. Why did Paul leave Titus there? Tells us, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So the first thing that Paul wants Titus to do is, we could say very simply, set things in order. Okay, he wants to, to create he wants Titus to create order out of chaos. This is what chapter 1, verse 5 is about. Go over there and make sure that you bring order to the disorder that's there and, and, uh, and refute those false teachers as he, he will tell him in verses 10 through 16. It's amazing if you look at all the, uh, all the commands in the book. They're mostly directed... They're all directed at Titus, but most of them are directed at teaching. You do this sort of thing. You, you exhort them. You proclaim this. You urge them. And, and so the way that he's going to do that is by, bringing, by, by preaching the gospel and letting these false teachers know that, that they must be silent. Apparently, these false teachers in Crete were a serious problem. Notice verse 10, how Paul describes them. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers. And somehow they're affiliated with the Jewish customs, if not Jewish. At the end of verse 10 it says, especially those of the circumcision. And the effect on the local church was disastrous. Look at the effect in verse 11. Who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families. They're ruining whole households. And all of it was motivated by what at the end of verse 11? Money, greed, dishonest or sordid gain. And so what, what does Paul tell Titus to do at the beginning of verse 11? Make sure that they are silenced. Make sure that they're silenced. John Calvin says the, the pastor needs two kinds of voices. Sorry about that chords a little shaky. Um, pastor needs two kinds of voices. One to call the sheep to follow him as he follows Jesus and another to ward off the false teachers or to turn the wolves away. And that's what Paul is telling to Titus here. He's saying, get your false teaching voice out and start rebuking them. Make sure that they're not causing damage to the people of God for their own sordid gain. So first, bring order out of chaos, or we could say order out of disorder, and then teach people how to live. 
teach people how to live. And this is what he does here by establishing the expectations of what a leader should be in verses 6 through 9. Familiar, probably familiar qualifications there for a pastor, which we'll look at next week. He's saying, listen, if, if the gospel is something that changes us, if the gospel is not just something we believe, but actually something we live as well, if faith without works is dead, then, then this gospel ought to turn us towards good works, towards godliness. So what we should expect of our leaders, particularly pastors, right? Elder, an elder must be a person who is blameless at home and, a, and blameless at the church because if he can't be blameless at home or if he can't be above reproach at home, then how could he manage the house of God as Paul says in 1 Timothy 3. So, so set, up a, set up an example for the people to see, right? They have all this bad example that they're looking out in the watching world of what spirituality is. And so you establish leaders who are godly men who can, who can be an example and show them how to live. See, the Cretans didn't have a cultural model or icon or hero to look after when it, come, when it came to spirituality. And so Paul says, establish these kinds of leaders in the church. And then in chapters 2 and 3, he goes on to say, uh, he goes on to, to talk more about how to teach them to live. Remember chapter 2? Look at, look at chapter 2. You have these various groups of people that verse 2, older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible. So you... Titus, verse 1, you teach them the things that are fitting with sound doctrine. Teach the older men what they're supposed to do. Teach the older women what they're supposed to do. That they're supposed to live in a certain way and then they're also supposed to teach younger women. And teach younger men. And then verse 9, teach bond slaves, people who, who have masters. Teach them how to live. And the reason for that is because this gospel is something that changes us, isn't it? So let's uh, let's look at two more things. A theme, which I always like to to kind of try to summarize what the whole letter is about, so that we can know where Paul is going. And then we'll look at an, uh, an outline, and then we'll um, make some application. All right, here's a theme that I um, I think fits with with all that's in here in Titus. Believers grow in godliness by the grace of God through the exhortation of pastors or a pastor. Okay, believers grow in godliness by the grace of God through the exhortation of pastors. So in one word, we could say that this letter is about godliness. It's about turning from infants in the faith to people who are mature, who are godly, who are pursuing godliness. And, and one of the ways that God accomplishes godliness in the life of the body of the church is through the exhortation of a pastor. And so Paul just says, Titus, set up people who can do this. In fact, if you look at chapter 1, verse 9, he says, in addition to their character, verse 9, he says, make sure that they hold fast the faithful word which is in, court, in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So the way that there's going to be growth, one of the ways that there's going to be growth in godliness within the life of believers is through the encouragement, the exhortation, the challenging of pastors. All right, let's look at an outline briefly. 
and then we'll um, think about some application. All right. So chapter one, the church must maintain good order. Leaders must be godly. We talked about that. And then false teachers must be refuted. So if you have a guy who's just a really gifted um, gifted person who's really friendly and, and maybe a, a, a quality businessman and he wants to be the pastor of a church but he is not able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it, then he's not qualified to be a pastor. We'll talk about that more next week. All right, Because that's part of the responsibility is for the, the under-shepherd... Right? You have the chief shepherd, and then the under-shepherd is, is the pastor. And he needs to be able to guard the flock from all the dangers that come from outside and from inside. We talked about this in Colossians on Sunday. All right, So the church must maintain good order. So go to that place and set in order um, what remains and establish leaders and so on. Then chapters 2 and 3 are, are about the the idea that the church must be marked by good deeds. So it's not enough for us just to, to affirm the truth of the gospel. I hope we can all do that. But it's not enough for us to do that. Paul says that gospel must change us into godly people. So stop living like the world, like the, our society, and, and start living like God expects us. So that's going to play out in our relationships, right? Older men, younger Younger men, older women, younger women, bond slaves, and so on. And this godliness is rooted in our salvation, the grace that comes through salvation. And it's grounded in grace there, chapter 3. Okay, one principle and three applications. Here's the principle. Our actions are an expression of our doctrine. The way that we act is an expression of what we think. How we think determines how we act. So how you live matters. Now, I need to make a distinction here between our stated doctrine and our actual doctrine. Okay? Our stated doctrine is what we would write down on paper or if someone showed us a statement of faith, we would say, yes, I believe that. Our actual doctrine is what we actually live by. So let me give an example of a stated belief that's not connected with, with theology. All right? I believe that an all-chocolate diet is bad for my health and will lead to my death eventually. That's a stated belief. Right? Now suppose I go three days without eating anything but chocolate then my stated belief doesn't really matter, does it? Because I've stated something that I said I believed, but I'm actually living by some other code or other belief or doctrine, right? So my actual beliefs, how I live, is based on my actual beliefs, not my stated beliefs. Do you see the difference? Now, the same thing is, is true with regard to our doctrine. So when I talk here about our actions are an expression of our doctrine, what I'm not talking about is our stated doctrine. Because here's the truth. If you're a member of this church, you have agreed to our statement of faith. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you believe it. And do you know what's going to determine whether you do or not? How you live. Right? Do you really live like that statement of faith says you believe? 
See, our actual beliefs are what determine how we actually live. Look at chapter 1, verse 16, just for an example of this. Chapter 1, verse 16. Here's uh, Paul's talking about these false teachers again. He says, They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him. So do you see the stated? What's the stated belief there? They profess to know God. They're, they profess, they state that they know God. We know God, but their actions say they believe something else, right? Their actions say they have a different belief that's not stated. Because by their detestable living, their disobedience, their worthlessness for every good deed, they show what they really believe. So for us as a church, we need the same message as these Cretans did. That our lifestyle is a reflection of what we believe. And if we say we believe the Gospel, if we say that that the Gospel has this transforming power to change sinners into mature saints, and yet we live like, verse 16, immoral, godless, pagan, then we betray what we say we believe. So what's the remedy? What's the remedy? Three things. Number one, we need to remember where we came from. We need to remember where we came from. Look at chapter 3, verse 3. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Does that describe anybody at some point in their life? Okay, a couple. A couple of you. <laughs> Maybe too afraid to raise your hand. But, but then, verse 4, so, so remember where you came from. This is, this is all of us. Verse 4, but when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by His grace we would be made heirs or inheritors according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement and concerning these things I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Okay, there's a lot there. But but what we need to recognize is where we came from. We were enslaved. We were lost. We were hateful and hating one another. But then what happened in verse 4? God came and He saved us on the basis of His mercy, His grace, it says there in, in verse um Verse 7, justified by His grace. And so now we receive these great riches and then notice what this should do for us in verse 8. This is a trustworthy statement and concerning these things I want you to speak confidently. So Titus, don't be afraid about saying this. Those who have believed God, see this connection that I've been talking about? Those who have believed God will be careful to pursue godliness. They will be careful to engage in good deeds. A person who's saved will produce good works. And so do it. Hey, start doing good works. The grace of salvation brought us out of our former enslavement. It made us alive. It granted us the blessings of Christ 
and and all the shared inheritance that we received with him and it resulted in good work. So remember where you came from. Secondly, we need sound doctrine. Paul told Titus, you know, one of the problems here is maybe they have a, a decent amount of doctrine, but, but they need to be reminded about some more things. Okay? You, you need to teach them, verse 1 of chapter 2, as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Fill them up with doctrine. Okay? We, can't, um, we can't live properly if we just kind of ignore all the truth about God. You know, I'm just kind of going to go through life and just when I have an impulse... That'll be God leading me. No, God leads you through clear and expressed doctrine. So we, like Paul says in Romans 12, we must continually be renewed in our minds so that we know what is good and acceptable and perfect with regard to God's will. It doesn't happen automatically. It requires work on our part, doesn't it? That, that God expects us to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. And we do it because of what God has done for us. So fill yourself up with doctrine and renew yourself in the spirit of your mind with the Word. And, and you do that by simply listening to God's Word and, and, um, and reading it for yourself. And that kind of ties in with this last one here. This third application is that we need to embrace the grace of God. We need to embrace the grace of God. Godliness does not start with kind of like some kind of a, a personal unction. You know, we just, I'm going to get this done. I'm going to be godly. I'm just going to grit this out. That's not how godliness starts. Godliness starts with the recognition of God's grace. It starts with the idea that apart from him i can do apart from him i can do no, okay in him i can do all things but but apart from him i can do nothing psalm 127:1 john 15:5 okay i am the vine you are the branches and he goes on to say that that um apart from me you can do nothing so so it starts with a recognition that i need god that's where godliness starts Again, back to our doctrine. Fill up your mind with what is true. Instead of presuming upon God's grace and waiting for kind of a holy lightning bolt to zap me into conformity, I instead use the means of grace. What ways has God given me so that I can embrace His grace? And what is it? God opposes the proud, but it gives grace to whom? The humble. So what we need to do is what the Cretans needed, needed to do, which is to, to humble ourselves before God. And here's a very simple way to do that. The two primary means of grace that the, the Reformers talked about are the Word and prayer. Okay, the Word and prayer. The third one, I think, was sacraments, but which means the ordinances, the Lord's Supper and baptism. So, so use those means of grace that God has provided for you. Has God provided the Word for you? Okay, what ways can you embrace God's grace by embracing His Word? And, and the answer, I think, is pretty obvious. There's lots of ways you can do it, but, but sit under the, the, the uh, teaching of God's Word. Listen to it taught. Read it for yourself. Study it. Meditate on it. 
That's a means by which you're going to humble yourself before God. You're basically getting down on your knees, figuratively, right, and saying, God, I don't know everything, and I need your help, so teach me. Teach me your word. That's a way to humble ourselves. Another way to humble ourselves before God is the second means of grace, which is to pray. Right? We're saying, God, I can't do this. That's what we're saying when we pray. When we go for days and months without praying, do you know what that says about us? It says either we don't want God's help or we don't think that He can help us. I, get, I got this on my own. And, and so what, what Paul is going to call Titus to do is simply um, teach the believers to, to embrace the grace of God. It's, it's the way through which they will, they will receive His his gifts and and um, and and will grow in godliness. All right, so that's kind of the start of what we're looking at. We'll just kind of take a paragraph at a time and and work through this together. Does anyone have any questions on on an overview? Yeah, maybe a little too much, huh? Oh, okay. Yeah, um, I um, I didn't look into the details, but I think he shows up several times in the book of Acts. No. As, no? Not in Acts. 2 Corinthians, Galatians, 2 Timothy. He's not in Acts at all. Okay. 